Hello, everybody, uh, and Kiora. Welcome to the Austroads webinar. Um, in today's session, uh, we will explore how to use backcasting, a vision-based planning approach to determine what the metrics of a safe road system should look like um, in order to achieve uh, zero road trauma, and how the current road system is tracking uh, towards this desired state. Uh, we have more than 700 people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina. I'm a Senior Communications Officer at Austroads and I will be moderating today's session together with Michael Newstick, um, Austroads Road Safety and Design Program Manager. Michael will moderate your questions at the end of the webinar. I would like to start by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Ostrots is based in Sydney and so today I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging and their deep and ongoing connection to the land. Um, a little bit of housekeeping. Our presenter will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have some time to answer your questions. Um, the slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon um, on your sidebar. Also, let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. Um, so leaving the session, closing the browser, and rejoining again um, via your email registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, um, you can also find Ostrots in your podcast app. A little bit about Ostrots. Um, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Um, today's webinar was brought to you by the Road Safety and Design Program, which is managed by Michael Newstick. Um, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenter for today, Jessica Troyong. Jessica received the Women in Road Safety Award at the Australasian Road Safety Conference in 2023. Uh, presented by Austroads, the award was given in honor of um, Jessica's commitment to improving road safety using technical knowledge, policy, strategy, and communication to deliver safer outcomes for all road users globally. Um, Jessica is the Director of Lozinga and the Secretary General at the Towards Zero Foundation. Welcome Jessica and over to you. Thank you so much Ekaterina. And good morning, good afternoon and good evening to those of you that have joined us for this webinar today. And I also want to say a big thank you to Osrose for inviting me to make this presentation today. It is a topic that is really close to my heart and what I'm hoping to do today is present to you some of the thinking around whether I think zero road trauma is possible. I've been a little bit obsessed with the whole safe system vision zero topic and whether or not it is possible to actually achieve zero road trauma for a number of years now. Um, I, I'm currently based in London and I'm with the Towards Zero Foundation and I do a bit of uh, work with Lersninger as well. But previously I was working at the Transport Accident Commission in Victoria, Australia, and I was very fortunate that the TAC sent me on a secondment to the Swedish Transport Administration in Sweden to do a bit of a deep dive into the original Vision Zero concept. And I was very fortunate to be able to spend some time with Klaus Tingvall and his colleagues to learn more about the origins of Vision Zero or what we know as the safe system approach in Australia. And I refer, returned from that trip, I guess, really wondering, is Vision Zero possible? Is it possible to actually build a safe road transport system that can help us achieve zero? I was so interested in the topic that I decided to actually embark on a PhD to actually investigate whether or not this is possible for Victoria in Australia. 
So today's webinar, I'm hoping to present you with some of the thinking and the work that has gone into understanding whether this question is actually possible. And I would like to share some of that knowledge and understanding with you today. So the results and the content that you'll see in the presentation today is a mix of some of the research that I have done from my PhD and also some of the work that I've done with some of my colleagues at Learning in applying some of this thinking to helping, to helping jurisdictions understand whether zero is possible for the work that they're doing. So I'm really looking forward to um, hearing any questions you may have at the end. So a number of, you know, you would be very aware that there is a UN declaration of the decade between now and 2030 as a, the second decade of action for road safety. And we're looking at achieving a 50% reduction in road fatalities and injuries, hopefully by 2030. Um, and that's a very ambitious target for a number of jurisdictions, given where we're sort of sitting at with road safety at the moment. Um, but some jurisdictions have taken it even further and have decided to set a date in which they want to achieve zero road trauma by. So what we know is like New South Wales in Australia has set a date of 2056 in which they want to achieve zero road trauma by. The US and the EU have also set a date of 2050. And then broadly, Australia and New Zealand have also committed to a 2050 date to achieve zero road trauma by. And this is fantastic. And these are very ambitious targets and we applaud them for that. And, you know, there's lots of research sort of indicating that, you know, there are great reasons why jurisdictions should adopt ambitious targets. You know, one of the first things in setting a target of 2050 or 2056 or zero by a particular date is it brings the focus back to the ultimate target of where we want to be. And, you know, intermediate targets like the one that we have in 2030, they're very helpful, but um, oftentimes they tend to favour cost-effective, more short-term solutions, leaving a substantial residual problem that we'll still have to deal with in the future. Um, and then secondly, I guess one of the reasons why we want to set ambitious targets is that it helps drive policy changes. It, you know, it puts um, the community and decision makers on notice that more will need to be done. It helps drive innovation and, um, you know, it, it's a great way to actually get people thinking about where do we need to be and what further actions we need to do. And, you know, the fact that countries and jurisdictions are setting a target by 2050, it's an indication that many people believe that it is possible to design a safe system. You know, the idea of potentially getting to zero is becoming increasingly more tangible for a lot of people. So what we saw as potentially utopia, you know, a few years ago, it, you know, we're beginning to be able to envisage what that system could potentially look like, at least on a conceptual level. So it's fantastic so many jurisdictions are so ambitious with their targets and especially the ones that are aiming for zero by a set date. But it does leave the question then, well, what does the road system need to look like in order for us to be able to achieve uh, vision zero or achieve zero by 2050? What does the road system need to look like for the different road users? How do we protect pedestrians and cyclists? as well as still allow people to move around the road network as it's been designed to do. So how would it look for different parts of the road network? So, you know, it's great to have ambitious targets, but we also need to understand what should the system look like in order for us to be able to achieve that goal. And so how do we do that? And one of the concepts that we can use to help us envisage what that safe system should look like, we can, we have to start from the end, basically. If we want to understand what zero looks like, we need to start right from the end, not from where the current system is now, but start from the end where we want to be. And to do that, we can use a process called backcasting. Some of you may have seen this image used before, and you may have heard of the term backcasting. So backcasting is really a method that attempts to work backwards from where we want to be in the future before we start working out the steps and working backwards to understand what are the key priorities that we need to put in place between where we want to be in the future and where we are now in order for us to be able to achieve that desired system right at the end. So 
without that clear understanding of what it is that we're trying to build, it's not going to be possible to get to zero. And essentially what backcasting does is it gives us a blueprint of what that zero trauma system will need to look like. Um, at the moment in road safety, you know, we're, we're, we're great. You know, we're doing so many different things to help reduce trauma. And a lot of those um, actions are very effective in being able to help us reduce trauma in the short term. But I kind of like the analogy that at the moment we're, we're sort of building, like building a road system without a blueprint. It's almost like building a house without a blueprint. We're sort of putting a brick here with one intervention, putting another brick there. And what we're hoping at the end is to get a zero trauma system or to get a house with you know, a specific design, but we don't have any clear idea of what that house needs to look like or what that zero trauma system needs to look like. So if we want to get to zero, we need to have that clear understanding. We need to have that blueprint. So how do we get started? We need to start thinking about what that safe transport system should look like. Um, and, you know, are there steps to help us do that? And as a part of my PhD, I, because of my obsession with Vision Zero and the safe system, I did a bit of a deep dive into the origins of Vision Zero, the original principles and the safe system. And what I found was there are actually steps given as a part of the original Vision Zero concept. You know, it wasn't just a set of principles, it actually gave us the steps to guide us on how to build that safe transport system. It's relatively unheard of. I certainly haven't heard of these steps before I sort of did this deep dive into the original documents. And it's probably not as well known as some of the principles that, you know, uh, we sort of see in a lot of policy documents. But, you know, um, what I've got there are 10 steps that came with the original Vision Zero uh, concept. And it gives us the steps, really, it's about understanding who are we designing the system for? what level of health loss and fatalities and injuries are we willing to accept? Who are we trying to protect? And how do we design the system and the boundaries? And what sort of errors are we allowing into the system? So it actually provides a very systematic way to help guide us through the building of a safe system. You know, but the original safe system principles that most of us are quite familiar with actually provides a lot of information already that can, you know, guide the design of a safe system. And, you know, this is probably more the safe system as we know it, and the ethical imperative around it is probably the most well-known part of Vision Zero or the safe system around the fact that it can never be ethically acceptable that people will be killed or seriously injured when they're using our road transport system. And these are the principles, I guess, as they are commonly distilled down into. So we're all familiar with the understanding that obviously no one should be killed or seriously injured as a part of our safe system. We understand that people make mistakes, we all do. Our human bodies are extremely fragile and vulnerable. It's a shared responsibility and therefore we need to build a forgiving system in order to protect the people that are using the system. And, you know, there's been some good research uh, very recently to show that, you know, using the safe system approach to road safety has, you know, resulted in larger improvements in, you know, uh, road fatalities and injuries than would have otherwise occurred if people weren't using the safe system approach. So that's really encouraging in hearing that research is backing up the effective use of safe system in helping us to achieve, you know, better trauma reduction. Um, and we know there are so many jurisdictions, all of Australia, New Zealand, but also globally, there's so many jurisdictions around the world that has adopted the safe system approach. So why aren't we seeing more significant improvements in road safety, especially in recent years where, especially in Australia, I guess, we're seeing an increase in fatalities in many of our jurisdictions. So why are we not seeing more improvements? And as a part of my PhD, along with some other researchers, we sort of try to understand why are we not seeing that sort of effective implementation. And essentially what we sort of drilled it down into is like, 
effective implementation of the SAFE system as we know it is pretty much hampered by two key reasons. One is how we are actually interpreting the shared responsibility principle and two is like actually segmenting the SAFE system into pillars of action. So I just want to talk about these two just very briefly. So the shared responsibility principle I think we hear about a lot that the system designers are the ones that are responsible for designing the road transport system, but the road users are the ones that are responsible for following the rules set by the system designers. But if you go back to the original Vision Zero principles, there is another part of that shared responsibility principle that we don't hear a lot about. And that is, if the road users fail to comply with the rules set out by the system designers, by default, it is the responsibility falls back onto the system designers to ensure that nobody will killed or be seriously injured. So I think that's a really important point because the default responsibility still belongs to the system designers. Road users, it'll be great if they can follow the rules, but understanding that they make mistakes, it's probably unlikely that everyone will comply. So what does that mean? It means it's still up to us to ensure the road system is able to protect people from fatalities and serious injuries. So it doesn't really make sense, I guess, to make you know, our road users responsible, given the fact that we know they're gonna make mistakes. So it doesn't mean that we don't have any requirements for road users, especially in the interim, in the current state that we're in, in the absence of a totally safe system. We still have to have some requirement for road users. It just means that if we truly want to get to zero, we can't just rely on educating road users, enforcing road users, and just focusing on improving road users because that's not gonna get us all the way to zero. And the second reason around why I guess safe system hasn't been adopted to that true extent is around the fact that we, you know, I've just put a couple of examples of how safe system has sort of been depicted around, around in different strategies. And you can see we're often, you know, defining safe system as action pillars. So vehicles, roads, speeds, vehicles, post-crash care. Um, and sometimes it may include a couple of other different components as well. But the result of actually segmenting safe system into these pillars of action is that we're taking a more siloed approach to road safety. When actually a lot of these dimensions need have interacting effects for them to be able to achieve their true potential in achieving you know reduced fatalities and injuries they need to be delivered as a package we shouldn't be implementing them in silos and i guess one of the other reasons is when people start talking about it in these silos and action pillars people think they are applying a safe system approach if they are already if they work in one pillar of the many pillars that are available. Someone working in safe vehicles will be saying, well, I'm applying the safe system approach. I'm applying the vehicle safety pillar of the safe system approach. So I guess it has done a little bit of a disservice in our opinion on how we should be applying the safe system. So together, I guess, um, those may be one of the reasons why we're not seeing as an effective implementation of safe system as it can be. And we sort of took it a step further in one of my um, research papers. It's like, well, can we redefine the safe system to make it a little bit clearer? And we sort of came up with this definition of an ultimate safe system, which is um, really the original safe system with a bit of a twist, which is the ultimate safe system is really a system in which people cannot be killed or seriously injured, regardless of their behavior or the behavior of other road users. And uh, that um, may sound very ambitious, but I guess what we're looking at is like, we can actually design a system, the ultimate safe system to do that. We don't have to rely on people's goodwill to actually comply. We don't have to just rely on police enforcement to ensure people are complying. We can use existing technologies through vehicles to actually ensure people don't drift drive, people don't speed, that they're wearing their seat belts. And we can you know, ensure that they're complying with the speed limits through technologies such as intelligent speed adaptation. So once you start considering it in that way, we still need people to behave a certain way, but we don't necessarily have to rely on them doing it um, in the traditional way that we would consider it. We can enforce for that through road infrastructure or through vehicle safety. 
Um, and the idea is then we can build this ultimate safe system that can achieve these zero trauma outcomes by ensuring that we understand the human biomechanical tolerance to crashes. And that's one of the key principles of the safe system, if you sort of remember, is understanding humans are fragile. We've got an innate tolerance to how much we can take before our bodies start to break down, become seriously injured, or potentially even die. So we need to understand where those boundaries are when we start designing that system. And many of you will be very familiar with this particular graph on the left here. Like it's a more simplistic representation of, you know, um, you know, what is the maximum impact speed for a head-on crash, for a side impact, for a crash into a tree or a pedestrian-related crash. Um, and you know, it's served us well over the years, but you know, there are better and more advanced research that has come out in recent years that not only look at the fatality tolerance, which is the one more to the left, but actually taking into consideration what will we need to do to have a very low risk of death and serious injury. So the chart to the right is actually looking at what those maximum travel speeds should be if we take into consideration advancements in vehicle technology as well. So slowly we're starting to build up the picture of where and how that system should be designed. And as part of my PhD, we sort of um, compiled some of this research to help us understand, okay, well, what does it look like um, in terms of the maximum speeds that we can allow on our road in order to protect our pedestrians, our motorcyclists, and our car occupants in different you know, crash configurations. So this slide is really just to show you there is a lot of advanced research now that is available that can help us understand what the maximum travel speeds are in conjunction with road infrastructure and vehicle safety and how we should be designing that safe system um, in order to be able to reach our goal of a zero fatality and serious injury by 2050. Um, so these would set out then, and we have to remember then, I guess, the key design factor in designing that zero road system is to understand what our human tolerance is and design the system around that so that we can ensure that any crash that happens will not exceed these tolerance levels and thus no injuries or fatalities can then occur. So that's great and, you know, but, you know, that's just the safety aspect. To create a safe road transport system, we can create a safe road transport system quite easily if we don't have to think about mobility. We just lower the speed limits on everywhere in the road to within tolerance levels and we can be done with that. But of course, our road network is designed to carry us around. It's designed to move people. It's designed to move cars. It's designed to move freight. So we need to consider the purpose of the road transport system. So when we're designing that ultimate system in 2050, we need to have that in mind. What are the mobility needs that we need to accommodate and then overlay the safety features on top of it in order to meet both our safety objectives as well as our mobility objectives. And, you know, this is um, most jurisdictions probably have an overarching transport plan. Um, in Victoria, uh, in many jurisdictions in Australia, it's called movement and place. And, you know, broadly speaking, they can be sort of divided up into three three categories like you know we've got our pedestrian priority areas um, and then mixed traffic areas and vehicle priority areas and it sort of mentions like say pedestrian priority areas our focus is more about moving pedestrians making sure they're safe mixed traffic we've got pedestrians and vulnerable road users mixing with traffic and then the vehicle priority areas are your more high speed high volume traffic that's more designed to be moving people goods and um, freight so we can then use these transport mobility needs and start overlaying the boundary conditions of the human tolerance to start designing that zero trauma system. So the first step then is understanding what are our mobility needs before we specify the vehicle, the infrastructure and the speed limits in combination to ensure that any crash that occurs will be within that human tolerance. And what you will end up with then is what we call a safe system end state. And this safe system end state is basically your desired end state in 2050. This is your desired zero trauma 
system in 2050 that can help meet your transport and road safety objectives. Um, and then this is potentially what the end state can look like. This is um, an illustration from one of the projects that we did with a, a jurisdiction in Australasia. You know, what we did was first we defined what the movement and place classification is, and then we designed what the safe system boundary conditions are. We specified, okay, in these inter-regional connectors, we know that it's 100K, we want to be moving uh, people well, we're moving people, we're moving cars, we're moving freight, we need to keep the speed at 100. So what are the infrastructure and vehicle requirements that we need to put in place to ensure that any crash that happens at 100 kilometres are not going to exceed that human tolerance level? So we need to have flexible barriers, both in the middle and on the side. We need to have, <clears throat> excuse me, line markings to ensure that technologies like um, you know, lane keep assist can prevent people from run, running off the road. So you go through and you define that pretty much for each section of your road network. And we sort of went through and did that as a part of my research in the PhD. You start to break it down then. What are the vehicle requirements? What are the infrastructure requirements? And what are the maximum travel speed requirements in each section of the road network? So this one is an example of what it could look like for a pedestrian priority area. And this is another example of what it would look like in a mixed traffic area. You can see we can allow a slightly higher speed and the vehicle and the infrastructure requirements would differ slightly. And then when you move to the vehicle priority areas, it would differ even more because um, the transport function of this particular area is different from the two prior. And, you know, we're starting to look at even higher speeds because we're wanting to you know, move people and there's a greater mobility need for freight and vehicles. Um, but then of course, the infrastructure requirements would need to be a lot more um, stringent. Like we'll start to make sure that it's got full continuous side and medium barriers. We need to make sure the pedestrians, if we're allowing pedestrian access to be completely separated because we know from the tolerance level um, they can't have any potential impact if we want to keep them safe. So you start to go through and you start to define what the requirements are for each part of your system. And you're starting to build up that picture of what your ultimate system needs to look like in 2050 in order to be able to achieve zero. So we've gone through this exercise with a number of different jurisdictions. I've done it as a PEHD. And what we found is, yep, conceptually, we've got a system on paper that can achieve zero based on what we know. Um, of course, conceptually is not good enough. We need to then be able to validate and understand, well, can this system that we've specified really help us be able to get to zero? And what we did was we actually validated this system. And in this case, you can use a number of different statistical methods to do it. We did it via a case-by-case -case trauma analysis, which means we looked at every single road fatality and every single serious injury and we projected out. So we've got the 2050 safe system that we think can reach zero. If we project out this fatality or this injury into the safe system in 2050, based on those requirements that we've specified, would this fatality or would this serious injury still occur? So we went that, we did that, we did that as a validation study. And what we found was based on the systems that we've specified, 87% of all fatalities can be prevented. So we've got um, 87%, so not quite zero, but we're getting there, we're getting close. Um, and what we can understand through this process is that we can also deep dive and understand, well, we know that 87% can be prevented. Well, what about the remaining 13%? What can't be prevented? And what we found was the the residual fatalities that can't be prevented currently based on the system that we specified um, and are proving to be a little bit more challenging typically involve vulnerable road users in high-speed environments such as pedestrians or motorcyclists on high-speed rural roads. Um, but using this process we can then identify okay we understand what's not being prevented and then we can start applying innovation and applying um, additional uh, measures to that safe system and make amendments to it so that we can address these residual crashes as well. 
Um, so this uh, result is based on a work that we did in a jurisdiction in Australasia. But as a part of my PhD, I also validated the system for Victoria, Australia, and we did it for serious injuries as well. And the result, I guess, from my PhD, as well as the work that we've done in multiple jurisdictions now, and it's looking quite consistent, is the system that we've specified for 2050 is currently able to prevent 80 to 90% of all fatalities and serious injuries by just using currently available measures that we have at our disposal. So the things that we specified in that you know, 2050 end state are things like lane keep assist, autonomous emergency braking, electronic stability control, flexible wire rope barriers, uh, medium barriers, side barriers, grade separation. So they're not, you know, uh, innovations that are that we are waiting to come into play. They are currently available countermeasures. And I think this is really important to understand just by implementing the things that we know today, we can get up to 90% reduction from where we are currently. So we don't need to wait for autonomous vehicles or future innovations to be able to systematically prevent the vast majority of the fatalities and serious injuries that we're seeing on our roads today already. Um, and then, you know, we can, we also understood then, well, what is it? Why are we still not getting these trauma reduction levels in the jurisdictions that we're working in? And, you know, as a result of that validation, we understood what's actually happening in 2030 and 2050. And you can see from this chart, one of the reasons why we're not seeing those reductions in trauma is really around slow implementation of the countermeasures that we have today. That was the biggest reason why trauma reduction levels are not reducing as quickly as we would like to see. And the second biggest reason, um, I guess, was lack of implementation. We've got a lot of things at our disposal now, but we're not seeing jurisdictions implement plans to ensure that they're being implemented in a timely fashion. Very few of the cases that we investigated were due to the fact that we have no countermeasure available to address it. There were, of course, a few, as you saw in the residuals, but the vast majority can be prevented already. The remaining would just require uh, a bit more innovation before we can get there. Um, I guess the next step in understanding, can we really build that 2050 zero trauma state is really understanding and trying to quantify what is the challenge ahead of us. Um, we know where we want to be. We specified that 2050 system. We know where we want to be, but we need to understand what is that quantum of work that lies ahead of us between now and where we want to be in 2050. So to do that, you can undertake a gap analysis, which is what we did. And this gap analysis can help you understand and to quantify what is the safety gap between the infrastructure and the vehicle fleet uh, composition that we have currently and where we want to be in 2050. And what you would do is you will actually undertake this gap analysis separately for infrastructure, vehicles, and the speed limits that we want to see on the roads. And you do a comparison. We want to be here in 2050. This is where we are currently. How much work have we got lying ahead of us between now and 2050? So the example I have here is an example of an infrastructure gap analysis. And um, you know the gap that we have, you can sort of see the red are the roads that are not meeting our 2050 end state um, specifications. And you can see on the image on the right, and this is for Victoria, there is a lot of work to do in order to close that gap. There are many, many roads that currently are not meeting the requirements that we need for 2050. And you can express that as kilometers of roads with these missing infrastructure requirements that we need. Um, and then you start to very quickly build a picture of, okay, we've still got X number of kilometers between now and 2050 that we need to transform in order to be able to get to that 2050 end state. And you do that for infrastructure, you do this for your vehicle fleet, and you do this for your, uh, your travel speeds and your speed limits on the roads to understand what is that gap that you need to close between now and 2050. And then what you can do once you have an understanding of what that gap is between now and 2050 is we can then start developing pathways to start closing that gap. 
And the aim at this part is to find the most optimum pathway from where we are currently to zero road trauma in 2050. So in terms of a pathway to 2050, we're aiming to develop near-term cost-effective solutions so that we can address the most high-priority injuries right now in order to be able to save as many lives as we can right now, but at the same time, starting to prepare for the long-term sustainable reduction in road trauma by putting in place plans to concurrently build that 2050 safe system that we specified right at the start. And then we can sort of use this process to look at what happens. Okay, well, if we bring forward or delay implementation, will that help us, um, you know, reach zero by 2050 or is it going to push it out to zero by 2060? So you can start playing around with these scenarios and these pathways in order to understand, you know, what your investments are going, how your investments are going to take you in between now and 2030, 2040 and 2050. And then once we have that system in place is, and we've established what that pathway we want to go on is, we then need to start monitoring our progress in achieving that. So traditionally, I guess we're more focused on tracking how we're doing with fatalities and serious injuries and less focus on what that transformation of our road system is looking like. But if we want to get to that 2050 end state, we also need to be tracking how well the system is transforming. So if we want 100% of high-speed rural roads to have uh, flexible median barriers by 2050, we need to start tracking our progress in 2030, what percentage of our high-speed rural roads have flexible median barriers, are we reaching our targets? Only then will we be able to systematically ensure that the transformation of the system is going to um, be as we want it to be in 2050. So this is, I guess, a quick summary of the steps that I've just mentioned, and this is a, a, um, something that Lerstinger has developed, and it sort of incorporates the, the, the summary of the steps on how we can plan and build a zero road trauma system. And this is the process that we've been using with a number of jurisdictions in Australia and New Zealand to help them plan for their zero trauma system by 2050. And I guess in summary then, it's, you know, we think backcasting is a very powerful tool that you can use to help you plan for your journey to achieving zero by whatever set date you want to achieve that by. But for us to do that, we really, really need to start from the end. I really do believe we need to envisage and understand what that system needs to look like in order for us to be able to effectively build and plan for it. And backcasting helps us to understand what our priorities should be in the next few decades in the lead up to 2050. And I guess um, just rounding up, coming back to the question of this uh, whole presentation is whether I think zero is actually possible. And I guess my conclusion based on all the work that we've done to date is, you know, the systems that we've specified right now, 80 to 90% of fatalities and serious injuries can already be prevented with what we know and what we have available. And I truly believe with some additional innovations, um, in addition to what we currently have, I do think zero is possible. Is it going to be easy? No. Um, and that we've got, you know, a work cut out for us in the next few decades if we're really serious about achieving zero by 2050. But I do think it's possible. And um, I think if we all work together, it's not going to be, you know, as difficult as maybe what we initially envisaged. But definitely there is still a lot of hard work in front of us. But um, I personally do think zero is possible. Um, yeah, I hope you found that um, interesting and I'll be very happy to take some questions now. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, that was a wonderful presentation and I want to congratulate you on receiving the ACRS Women in Road Safety Award. Uh, you were a very popular winner and clearly today you're very popular with the Austroids community. We've got hundreds of people online listening to you. So congratulations on delivering a very popular webinar in the uh, Austroids virtual auditorium. Uh, yeah, so you referred to Vision Zero as an obsession of yours. Um, I'd yeah. say that that's been obvious, your passion um, today has come through. 
but I, I just enjoyed um, hearing your, your your wisdom and your experience come through. So thank you. Uh, and lots of other people have clearly enjoyed that. We've got a lot of questions, Jess. Uh, so let me give some to you now. I'm going to, I'll go fa as fast as I can so we can get through as many as possible. And we'll do our best. We'll, we'll hold you uh, for, for a good 20 minutes, if that's okay, Jess. And I appreciate it's uh, very early in the morning where you are. So thank you. Um, are there any locations that have already achieved Vision Zero or have made significant progress and how did they do it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I don't think one jurisdiction or one country has achieved zero for their entire road network, but certainly um, you can sort of break it down. Um, I think some European cities have actually found that they have achieved zero for a particular group of their road users. For children, for example, um, in some cities in Europe, they've actually achieved zero. Um, and I guess sometimes zero depends on how we define it. Are we talking about zero for a particular year or over multiple years? I guess these cities have looked at, okay, over a one year period, we haven't had any child fatality um, in relation to road trauma. So they would have deemed them to have achieved zero for that particular cohort. So, you know, when you start breaking it down like that, you can start to achieve zero. You know, maybe it might be a bit slower for particular groups, but that doesn't mean we can't start with some areas and start to build up until we get zero for the entire network. So definitely, yeah, it's been done. Thank you. Uh, could you please elaborate on other societal goals that support or could be supported by Vision Zero? As you know, road safety on its own struggles to sometimes cut through the noise. Yeah, I think um, road safety as a public health issue intersects with a number of other public health issues where we, especially I, I guess during COVID, where we sort of said we encourage people to go out and walk and not, you know, take public transport because of, um, you know, the, the risk of disease transmission and all that. But, you know, when we're encouraging people to get the exercise and heart health and cardiovascular health, we have to ensure that they will be able to do that safely. You know, we don't want to be solving one public health issue only to create another. We don't want to be encouraging people to go out to cycle and walk if we can't actually provide the road safety facilities to ensure they can do that safely. And we sort of saw that during COVID when, like, you know, the, I'm living in London at the moment, like a lot of pop-up ad hoc bike lanes that weren't really separated bike lanes. It was just a painted line with some uh, bollards along the roads. Um, but how do we then transform that into a total separation to ensure that cyclists can actually do that safely? So I do think, you know, road safety shouldn't be a standalone issue. It's got environmental impacts. It's got, um, you know, cardiovascular health impacts. And we should be talking to other areas of public health um, expertise in to ensure, I guess, we meet our road safety objectives, but also help them meet theirs as well. So I think there's lots of uh, synergies that we can sort of harvest if we really looked into it. Thank you. Where can lower and middle income countries get money? to make Vision Zero a reality? Um, <laughs> um, as a part of my work with the Towards Zero Foundation, we actually do a lot of work in low middle income countries and funding is often a big issue. Uh, there are, I guess, it's depending on which region of the world you're in, I think globally there are a number of key donors, but I guess uh, one that you may or may not have heard of is the UN Road Safety Fund that is available for people to apply for funding from. If you've got a particular project that you want to implement, um, you can also you can apply to the UN Fund. But this is probably a question that I can't answer in detail without understanding, I guess, in which particular region and country you're in. But I, I can say, though, funding is always going to be an issue for many countries. I guess it's how do we optimise the funding that we do have to use it most effectively to achieve the trauma out outcomes that we want to see. Thanks, Jessica. Um, since 1996, vehicle manufacturers have introduced infotainment systems that increase driver distraction. Does Vision Zero address this issue? Um, and in many countries, manufacturers have pushed the use of SUVs and light trucks instead of cars, which are more dangerous to vulnerable road users. What should we do? That's an interesting one. So the first one in terms of the um, entertainment system, um, we know that distraction is a big issue for road safety. 
I guess in the context of how do we build a safe system to accommodate that, um, I guess if we go back to what I was talking about in terms of the ultimate safe system where we don't want to rely on people to behave in the right way in order to be able to get the trauma outcomes we want to see is we want to design that system so when a crash does occur it doesn't exceed the human tolerance so it doesn't matter then whether the crash happened because the person was distracted or because they was drunk or because they just merely made a mistake or made a misjudgment it um, when the crash occurs we've got the infrastructure and the speed in combination that can mitigate the crash outcomes that we don't want to see. So, uh, but in the interim, until we have that system that can do that, obviously enforcement and um, you know road user education will continue to be a key part of the strategies. But ultimately, that system should be able to accommodate for that error um, or transgression without resulting in fatalities and injuries. Um, and then the second part of that question in terms of SUV, I do a lot of vehicle safety work as part of my work with the TZF. Um, it is becoming an increasing issue because that incompatibility between the vehicles and especially vulnerable road users is becoming an increasing problem. And that's why once again, when we start designing that system, we need to look at the composition of the fleet and understand, well, as we have more SUVs entering the system, how do we ensure we design the system once again to ensure that any crash impact does not exceed that human tolerance? And at the moment, SUVs, especially of the height and the weight, especially in the US, any impact with a pedestrian is going to be very, very serious. So the best thing to do would be try to segregate them and separate and make sure they don't meet or have any conflict. Um, but yeah, the other focus, I guess, is to ensure these vehicles, SUVs, have crash avoidance technologies, once again, to actually prevent the impact from happening in the first place. Because, because of their size and because of their weight, any impact is going to be not great. So if we can avoid that collision in the first place, that would be the first option. Um, goodness me, we must have about 100 questions. Um, I would say probably don't write any more questions because I'm not going to get a chance to get to them. So. Just sit and uh, enjoy what Jess is uh, sharing with us for the last um, 13 minutes. Uh, but Jess, there's also a lot of comments in there, so I want to pass those on. People are very grateful for your presentation and, and have offered their thanks and congratulations. Um, now, there's quite a lot of questions that people are wondering about a range of challenges. I think, how on earth will we solve that problem? There's things like mountainous roads, vehicle maintenance, um, quality of tyres, um, vehicles getting bigger and heavier, uh, extreme climatic events, declining driving skills as we age. How do we keep motorcyclists safe on high-speed roads? What about mixed traffic situations with very large vehicles sharing road with small vehicles and motorcycles? I think we're all reflecting this seems like such a big job. Can you help us, Jess? <laughs> I would love to. And I think um, these are all very valid questions and concerns and things that we need to think about. I think the system that we've designed so far, uh, you know, we're taking into consideration what's coming into the fleet and what's coming into the road safety picture as much as possible. But we also understand the, the transport system may evolve. We may start to see more e-scooters that we're not sort of seeing on our roads now. There may be other um, road safety issues entering into the picture that we may not have accounted for currently in our safe system. So it's not a set and forget system, you know, and the validation that we did, we would actually re recommend jurisdictions repeat that every three to five years to understand is that residual problem still the same? Are we still looking at the same challenges that we initially faced three years ago or are we starting to see new challenges such as more fatalities on you know or fatalities on mountainous roads because we haven't taken that into account initially or you know we're starting to see a proliferation of SUVs and we didn't account for that properly in the first so you'll start you can continue to make iterations to that safe system as new issues emerge but by and large that initial system that's been specified should be able to be able to prevent the majority of the fatalities and injuries that you're seeing now. That's not to say that there's not going to be new challenges popping up. There most certainly will be, that some that we can't even foresee right now. But that should not stop us from starting that journey now and preventing all the fatalities and injuries that we know can be prevented up to 90% straight away. And then we can start 
on the side start innovating for the remaining ones that we can't currently um, sort of address. Thanks. Uh, look, there's a question here that I think is really good, uh, good timing. Can you tell us more about the residuals that you saw? Um, so where are the gaps and where do we need innovation? Yeah, um, I would say one of the ones that sort of stands out amongst all jurisdictions are motorcyclists. Um, unfortunately, there are um, not as many, I guess, interventions that can effectively protect them as compared to uh, vehicle occupants occupants at the moment and that's I guess a combination of the high speeds of our roads, the lack of, lack of a, a protective shell around the motorcyclists um, and uh, I guess fewer innovations at this point in time. So we're seeing a lot of motorcycle fatalities and injuries remaining in the residual, especially on high speed roads. Um, and then we're also seeing vulnerable road users, such as elderly road users, um, where the impact might actually be not that high that you would expect a person to survive or not be seriously injured. But because, once again, the frailty of the elderly, we're seeing that they're remaining in the residual a lot. And then pedestrians as well. Um, and then I also saw as a part of my PhD some really non-systematic type of residuals such as um, people jumping on the hood of a car or out of the ute tray of a car or you know they sort of stopped their car and then they leaned out to pick up an item and they stepped on the accelerator and got crushed between the car door and a wall or um, yeah or pedestrian a driver really getting out on a freeway to retrieve an item and running across a high-speed road that was not designed for pedestrians and getting hit so you do have some systematic crash types remaining in the residual, like the motorcyclists and our pedestrians. And then you've got some very, um, I guess, I wouldn't use the word bizarre, but like, um, yeah, more unique type of cases that are not systematic in any way. They're random events that would be a little bit more challenging to try and design in a systematic intervention for. Thank you. Um, how does the role of mode shift impact the goal of reaching zero trauma? Is increasing public transport and cycling use a possible end goal in any population centre? It can be, and I guess this comes back down to what our, a jurisdiction's ambition is for their 2050 or 2060 end state. What do you want that transport system to look like? Um, do you want more people to be using public transport? you can design that into your 2050 system. So if you want more people to use transport systems, you would maybe reduce, you know, some of the other road networks. And you can play around with what you want that 2050 system to look like, where I guess we're not dictating what that system looks like. We're asking jurisdictions to tell us, what do you want your transport objectives to be in 2050? Do you want more people to be walking and cycling? Well, that's great. We can help you provide that safety overlay to ensure that people can walk and cycle safety uh, more safely. And you want to, you know, you want less people to be driving, that's great. Which part of the network do you want people to be driving in? Okay, on this part of the network? Oh, well, these are the requirements then to ensure that they can travel on that part of the network safely. So it can absolutely accommodate any modal shift that jurisdictions want to include. Uh, but ultimately, it comes back down to what the jurisdiction's ambitions and visions are for that 2050 system for their transport objectives. That's great. Um, now, just a couple of questions about vehicles. Um, there are some important vehicle safety measures that we're going to need. Some of them seem cost prohibitive um, and or they'll require a network, like a, a network or fleet-wide take-up. So we'll need to remove a whole lot of cars and bring a whole lot of new ones in. And we've also got the uh, the question of trust in technology with some drivers now opting to shut down particular technologies because they don't like them or don't trust them. What are your thoughts? Well, vehicle safety is another passion of mine. Um, we do a lot of that um, in my day job at the TZF. And I don't really buy into the argument that these vehicle technologies are cost prohibitive. A lot of these technologies that we're talking about that is required in the 2050 car, lane keep assist, autonomous emergency braking, and especially electronic stability control, ESC, this has been around for 20, 30 years. It's not a new technology. Most cars should have it. And lane keep assist, autonomous emergency braking, once again, they're not brand new technologies. 
they've all been around and actually in the EU they've actually been mandated to actually be um, on all new vehicles produced. Um, Australia, um, New Zealand has been a little bit slower on the legislation front but once you start mandating for these technologies uh, by a certain date, say like if we mandate all these technologies by 2030, by 2030 every single new car entering the market will have to have these technologies. Yes, it will take time for the fleet to turn over um, but there are ways to accelerate the turnover of that fleet as well. Um, it depends once again on how much money the jurisdictions wants to spend on that. You can actually um, uh, scrap some of the older fleet in order to bring in newer fleet. So there are strategies in terms of how you can actually encourage the faster turnover of that fleet. But I don't think these technologies are cost prohibitive and you know, they are available and they're effective and they can be used right now. We hear a lot of hype about autonomous vehicles and the danger of, you know, pushing for autonomous vehicles without considering what's available now is that a lot of jurisdictions just sort of default to, well, I don't have to deal with this problem right now. We'll just wait for autonomous vehicles to come into play and that will solve all our problems. But the technologies we're specifying right now these are all the technologies that we need in the future autonomous vehicle. So if we can't even get that into our fleet now, we have no hope for autonomous vehicles to come into the fleet. So I do think it's possible. Um, we just need stronger leadership from the uh, governments to start mandating that. And then on the flip side is encouraging fleet managers to uh, buy these technologies so that it turns over in the fleet more quickly and supporting Australasian NCAP, um, NCAP programs that push manufacturers to make these technologies ahead of any mandate that a country might implement. I'd like to give you one more question that presses the point a little. Um, so Euro NCAP recently highlighted that all of the focus in road safety is often on new passenger vehicles. We increasingly will need to shift our focus towards other vehicle types, including powered two-wheelers, commercial vehicles and older cars. So these vehicle types often lack the ADAS features that we take for granted, um, especially for the in the large commercial sector. And we we'll, we know that some trucks that are bought in the next five years will be in service for decades. Um, yep. So how important do you think aftermarket ADAS systems are for these other vehicle types? Uh, and what can be done to encourage the development and deployment of aftermarket ADAS? Is there a role for it, do you think? I think there is a role for certain ADAS technologies. Um, Unfortunately, with a lot of the ones that we're talking about, they need to be factory fitted at the time of manufacture. So there are very few, I guess, aftermarket ADAS technologies that um, could work, like autonomous emergency braking and ESC and all that, they need to be implemented and fitted onto the vehicle because they need to be tuned to the vehicle. So it's not possible to fit that aftermarket. But then there are technologies such as intelligence speed assistance that can be fitted aftermarket. Underruns for trucks, they can be fitted afterwards. So um, I, I think there is a great market for it and we need to encourage some of these aftermarket uh, technologies to be fitted if we want to reach our goal. Um, in the case of ISA, that would be especially important because Europe is the only region of the world that currently has a mandate for that technology. And we would love to see that in Australasia, but it may be many years still before we see that happen. So we need to then encourage voluntary adoption and that would be in the aftermarket sort of region. Yeah. Okay, I've got a, a little, maybe a challenging one, um, but you've shown in your presentation some movement in place um, scenarios and it seems like you've used movement in place as a way of categorising some of your work. Um, there are concerns about some limitations in, in Australia and New Zealand. We are perhaps a little slow or we're struggling with some of the finer details. Um, one example noted here is that many local streets are not considered to be pedestrian priority areas. Yet we would expect pedestrians, especially children, to be present there. What do you think about moving a place, its role in helping us um, articulate the, the function? You've re referred a few times to the function, uh, functionality of our roads and streets. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we used movement in place or the overarching transport plan that a jurisdiction had um, in order to be able to specify what that 2050 system should look like. And of course, it, they're not perfect. Um, there are challenges with each of the transport plans that we've sort of seen, but um, that is currently what the jurisdictions are using to guide their transport planning. And I guess we're just purely overlaying the safety on top of that there potentially could be better ways of doing it and we'll be very open to exploring if there is a better way of categorising. Um, but ultimately, I guess, um, we're not transport planners and in the sense of understanding, you know, where the transport needs should be, where the safety plan is, where we understand, okay, this is how you want to move people, this is where you want to um, move people and trucks and all that, well, we can help you design what the safety needs are in order to keep people safe in that part of the road network. But I absolutely take the point that there are, I guess, um, limitations to movement in place and um, some of the other uh, frameworks that's being used by other jurisdictions. Um, I guess until there is a better plan that we can sort of use, um, that's the one we're focusing on. But it's more just as an example at this point. Jessica, thank you. Congratulations again. We really appreciate the time you've given us. You're very generous and appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. So um, thank you to our audience. We'll just quickly hand back to you, Katerina, now. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michael. And thanks again, Jessica, for such a fantastic presentation and being with us and sharing all these insights. We have so many people sending through their thanks. Thanks so much again. Um, I only have a couple of slides uh, to wrap this session up. Um, as you can see on the screen, um, our upcoming webinars. So if you haven't, have, haven't had a chance to register yet, please uh, have a look. Uh, go to our website and um, register. If you'd like to receive updates from Australia, roads uh, subscribe to our, um, our monthly newsletter and uh, as we close out today's session a questionnaire will appear on your screen please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback um, it really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for our future webinars um, once again today's session is being recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.